Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. I'm joined today by Julia Butterfly-Hill. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be with you. So, Julia, you were a prominent forest campaigner in the late 1990s and early 2000s, but you've not spoken out in public about forest and deforestation for some time. Why are you speaking out now? It's kind of a convergence of reasons that have pulled me back into the public limelight. I actually continue to do a significant amount of work for forests, even after I came down from my famous action, which was living in an ancient redwood tree and protecting it in the grove around it. And that's what I'm most known for. But even after I came down, I continued to campaign on many issues, including forest issues. But for many years, I took myself out of the limelight because I felt like I had other work that I wanted to do that was more behind the scenes, as well as the fact that I find that it's a slippery slope in the world today between helping highlight important issues and becoming a celebrity. And when someone becomes a celebrity or a superhero, then we just say, well, that's the person who's going to save everything. That's the person who's going to make all the difference. And then people stop realizing that they're important too, that we are all important. We are all needed. It's not just Julia Butterfly. It is all of us. And so I I pulled myself back for many, many years, actually. I chose to come forward because of a few different things. And one of them being that next year will be 25 years since I touched the ground. And it's a momentous occasion, as anniversaries can be, as well as the fact that I've noticed on social media that my story has taken on a life of its own, even though I haven't been out publicly in the world. And it is spreading all over social media, all over the world, Indonesia, Brazil, France, Germany, I mean, you name Africa, all over the world. And so the two combined made me realize that this issue is so important the world, our children's future, relies on forest standing in order for us to survive. And the fact that it's a story that has a life of its own spreading all over the world without me doing anything nearly 25 years later shows that people care passionately about this issue. And also that people feel deeply about this need to have a sense of hope at a time that feels so overwhelming, where so much seems to be going wrong. And the two combined made me realize this is the time for me to reemerge, to utilize this platform that I've been given to try and show people this is still an important issue. There is work, deep and vital work that needs to be done. There is also great work being done. And let's talk about these things. Let's get involved in these things. And I was blessed to be friends with Everland for quite some years, the founder for over 20 years. And it just felt like the right convergence. Now was the time for me to step back out, not to be the celebrity Julia Butterfly, but to rather use the highlight, the attention, the platform around me to say, okay, Time to mobilize, everyone. There's work to be done. There's great work being done, and we need to do more of it. As you say, you've been campaigning in the background and in the foreground against deforestation for 25 years, over 25 years. Where have you seen the most progress in that time, firstly? And secondly, what frustrates you the most? 
I think a lot of people have noticed that we have these great strides and then these setbacks and these great strides and these setbacks. And sometimes that feels overwhelming to people because people feel like, well, I don't know where the best place to put my energy is if I get all this momentum and then I have a setback. What I notice is that the greatest successes come when everyday people get involved, place demands, put pressure. Government officials choose to have the courage to stand up and make the right choices for future generations, because oftentimes making the right choices for future generations means that it's going to have an impact right now that certain people won't like. And corporations that might be impacted might make a spin like there's a lot of pressure if a leader is going to stand up and make the right choice today and so it takes courage for people in political leadership to stand up and say even if this is the difficult choice right now it's going to become the best choice and it also is going to become the best choice economically over time so if we can recognize that We will invest in that right now, knowing that over time, the return on this investment is going to be phenomenal. And then the other great areas that we see change happening is when corporations are starting to realize, some are just starting to realize that they actually have grandchildren too, and they might want to think about their future. And other corporations are realizing that for their bottom line, it actually does make economic sense to start thinking about forest protection as a future investment. Because as we destroy the Earth's ability to regenerate our capacity for what we need, that's going to impact the bottom line. So we see these great things happening when all three sectors are starting to get involved, take stands create courageous choices. The setbacks, though, are the exact opposite. When corporations care about the short-term benefit at the expense of anything and everything else, when we see government leaders who are afraid to stand up against the status quo, knowing that it's going to have some blowback and they don't want to take the courage necessary. And with everyday people, People wanting things fast and cheap and not realizing that there's a massive, massive impact when we do that, not paying attention to when we make a choice, where did it come from and where does it go? So it's kind of a both and answer to the same question. Are you seeing a greater increasing focus on biodiversity and nature impacts alongside just deforestation? I think what's happening is people are starting to finally wake up and realize that the interconnection matters. While I was in the tree from 97 to 99, I was talking about these issues because I could see the cause and effect right there in front of me 24-7. I didn't go down to the ground and go inside and get warm and get separated from. I was there with cause and effect, including being surrounded by logging. And so I would watch as areas that had been completely denuded of forest caused silt and sediment to run down in the rains of the wintertime. And these streams that I could see for miles would turn brown and almost black in the wintertime as it fed silt and sediment down into the river where the salmon run, choking the salmon habitat, etc. I could see cause and effect 24-7 for two years and eight days. And I think what's finally happening is that people are realizing we cannot address an issue specifically 
by one piece at a time or we'll never get the solution we need. Nature doesn't operate in little tiny segments. Nature operates as a whole system approach. And therefore the solutions have to include a whole systems approach. And thankfully people are starting to realize that things like biodiversity are necessary for a long lasting solution. Sure, we can address one problem here, one problem there, and try and find a solution for it piecemeal, but we will never get the long-term effects we need, as well as it being economically not the most wise thing to think about it in segments. When we approach a problem through a whole systems approach, we make things better on the environmental level, but we also make it better on an economic level because it has the capacity to last in a way that it will not last if we're just picking one point here and one point there. Do you think that there had been a bit of a carbon tunnel vision approach developing? I mean, there's pros and cons for that, I guess, but do you think that there had been too much of a focus just on carbon? I think what happens is people sometimes will jump on a bandwagon or attack the bandwagon. And I think we've seen both. <laughs> and so we see people jumping on the bandwagon and saying our climate, which is our life, it's like it's not something out there. The climate is this thing that we live in and live with, that our actions have created a, a chaos that is affecting us on a very real level and affecting generations who will inherit whatever choices we make. They're the ones who are inheriting the greatest impact of the choices we make. And so we're recognizing there's this crisis in climate. And so it creates this tunnel vision around carbon, carbon, carbon. We have to draw it down in order not to tip the point too far. And then at the same time, if we don't think in whole systems approach, then it still doesn't work because it all interacts with everything else. So it certainly has been a problem, although I understand where it comes from. If we think about it like going into the emergency room at the hospital, when you go into the emergency room, they're all about where is the worst wound? How do we get to that right now? And then we'll worry about everything else. And so I feel that in many ways, it's kind of like we realized we were in the emergency room and we went all hands on deck, carbon down. But now that enough time has passed, we realized actually what we need to start thinking about is how we start thinking about a holistic health approach. How do we get ourselves to being in a, in a place where we're not constantly in the emergency room? And that's where projects like Red Plus, which I'm a fan of, are bringing a more a whole systems approach thinking so that it's not just about carbon. It's about a whole systems, the diversity, the health of the people and the animals that live there, the quality of the water, the quality of the air, like it's a whole systems approach, which is what is necessary to get us out of the emergency room. And at some point, if we want to not only survive as a species, but thrive as a species, we have to shift our way of thinking and living and feeling. To me, it's also a part of our heart that when we feel connected to this earth and to one another, we begin to shift our behaviors. We begin to automatically shift the choices we make, not just because of how science might say it affects us or not, but rather that we care deeply about how we relate to one another, how we relate to this earth, how we relate to future generations. And we want to think in a more whole systems approach because we want to make sure that all of life is thriving, 
And for me, also, if we're just looking at carbon, we're not looking at the beauty. I'm an artist. I love beauty. <laughs> and carbon alone doesn't look at the absolute breathtaking beauty of a biodiverse forest with waterfalls or lakes or streams, all of these other things that make this planet so phenomenally beautiful and magical. And we're lucky enough to call it home. And so that's also a part of a whole systems approach. It recognizes that there's more than just carbon at stake. There is a beautiful planet that we all share and that we are going to pass along to future generations. And what do we do about that? You mentioned Red Plus just now. Uh, Innovation Forum has been doing quite a lot of work on Red Plus projects with our partner Everland. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about what attracted you to initially to Red Plus projects. What about Red Plus projects is it that you like? Well, what's interesting is a lot of people don't realize that I actually started working on this carbon issue while I was still up at Luna. It was when Gore started talking about all this, Al Gore in the United States, and was talking about all this and working about on the, this and trying to begin this larger conversation around climate and how that was going to impact us. And I was doing all this research from the tree. This was before the technology we have now. So I had a hand-powered radio. You wind it for 30 seconds. You could listen to it for 30 minutes. And I was listening to every kind of news outlet I could listen to. And because it was a, an emerging topic at that time, I was really diving in deep. And then I would ask my ground support on the ground to send me either books or download things off the internet, print it and bring it up to me. So I was putting myself through school in many ways. And I was a part of a, an event and media event from the tree by phone. And I actually spoke about the importance of this issue. And I did acknowledge concerns that are still concerns today, ones that like, of course, if we're not careful, there will be people who use this as a shield to hide behind doing terrible things and pretending that they're doing good things. But there's a way to mitigate that. And that is by creating third party organizations that go in and monitor everything that's happening that are not accountable to any one government or any one business or any one organization. They are accountable to future generations. They're housed within a collective that is overseeing everything that's happening on our planet. And their only goal is to ensure that future generations are going to inherit a planet they can live on. And they will go in and monitor everything through that lens. And then I said, we can do what I call the olive branch big stick. The olive branch big stick is incentivize the heck out of people doing it right. Find the heck out of them. Give them massive, massive taxes and, and other fines and problems if they do it wrong. That's the big stick. So many of the things up to that point had always been big stick oriented. You do it or else. But then there's no incentive for people to do it right. And that's why, like in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency has been failing for years and years and years and years and years. We've had it forever, and it's a failing system because it's based on the big stick model. So if someone finds an endangered species on their farm, they're going to go kill that thing and hide it in the ground before someone knows about it so that they don't have to change their way of doing anything and be negatively impacted economically. Whereas if we have an incentive for endangered species to be found on their farmland, guess what's going to happen? We're going to have more endangered species protected. And so from the tree, I was talking about the same thing with the carbon market. 
It needed to be a third-party certified entity. It needed to have an incentive model and a decentive model both attached. And that it needed to be based on, again, my passion, which is a whole systems approach, not just sink carbon in the ground, but let's make sure that forests are protected, that communities are protected, that wildlife is protected. And it was so interesting because I did this whole talk on the phone. And then after I got done, this one reporter stood up and had their turn at the mic. And it was clear they didn't listen to a word I said. And they just attacked and it's the same kind of attacks that are happening now. This is just greenwashing. This will never work. These corporations shouldn't be polluting at all. The same kind of things we hear to this day. And I said, well, clearly, sir, you didn't listen to a word that I just said. You actually came here only with the goal to attack, not with the goal to be a part of the solution. So you just got your job done. Now you can sit down and hand the mic to someone else who's interested in being involved in the solution. Thank you. <laughs> and that was in like 98, 99. So I've actually been passionate about it this all this time. And so when I heard about the Red Plus model, I got very excited because it was a model that is more whole systems approach. It is a model that has outside third-party certification watchdogs to make sure that if something goes wrong, which eventually things will always go wrong, I don't, you can't pick a sector of anything where something's not going to go wrong. You buy a car, something's going to break down eventually. Like something's always going to go wrong. But with this third-party certification, you know that if something is found to be wrong, it's either going to get fixed or the corporation or organization is going to be held into a very high account. And so that's why I got really passionate and excited about Red Plus, because something that I started talking about in either 98 or 99 finally had a model that was doing what I was talking about all those years ago. So is that why you would suggest that companies invest in Red Plus project-based emissions reductions credits rather than other credits available elsewhere in the carbon market? Absolutely, that's why, because there's going to be challenges no matter which direction we head. That's always going to be a part of it. I love your name, Innovation Forum, because one of the things I've talked about for many, many, many years is that perfection is the enemy of creativity and innovation. So people will try and attack things like Red Plus or an entity or an organization or a community that has a mistake or a problem or something goes wrong, just like they try to attack me. And they'll say, look, the whole thing is bad. The whole thing is terrible because this one thing went wrong. And I'm like, well, <laughs> unless you are perfect yourself, number one, let's start there. But number two, perfection is the enemy of creativity and innovation. And our world desperately needs innovation right now because the old way of thinking is what has gotten us to where we are. And so the old way of thinking isn't going to help us solve the problems we're facing now, they've gotten us here. So it demands and requires innovation. And so this innovation is key to moving forward. And I see Red Plus as a model that strives for innovation, is always looking for where are next best practices. It's not saying it's the perfect model. It's saying this is the best model we have right now. 
And we're constantly looking to our communities, looking to scientists, looking to innovators to find where the next best steps might come from. It's not a stagnant model. Anywhere in nature that's stagnant is a dying system. Perfection is a stagnant way of thinking. It is a dying way of thinking. And one of the reasons I love Red Plus is because from everything I've read, everything I've researched, everything I've been told about, it's a living system. It's constantly looking for where to evolve, where to grow. And anytime it learns something, it's applying that learning to how it operates so that it just continues to get better. And that's, again, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it, because if, if it came to me as a stagnant model, as great as it is, I would still have some real concerns. But what I see is a model that's actually based on actual innovation and actual innovation demands constant learning, constant growing from what we learn. Red Plus projects, of course, have their critics, particularly around methodology, carbon accounting, and so on. So is your response to them, that very point around, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is an evolving model. It's not perfect. Everyone accepts that, but it's the best we've got. Absolutely that. And also I find that the loudest critics are the people that have zero solutions. I start there. I'm like, great, you can sit over there and criticize all you want, but I'm going to be over here busy at doing the work I know to do to make the world better, to help protect this beautiful planet for those who are here today and those who are still to come. I'm going to keep doing everything I can to keep species alive and not going extinct. And you can sit over there and criticize because that's easy. It takes no creativity. It takes no innovation. It takes no strategy to criticize. So until you're ready to do something and get involved in making a positive difference, I'm going to be over here doing the work. I'm not going to let you slow me down because of the world and our future generations, which is what I'm deeply passionate about as well, because they inherit. They don't get a say. They just inherit whatever choices we make. And I'm so passionate because I feel their future. And I, and I talk to so many young people today and they're feeling so despondent and so overwhelmed and so scared for their own future that I don't have time to sit by and listen to critics who have no solutions. If they have a solution, I am happy to listen to it because I want to implement any solution that will work because those children, many of whom I will never meet, they rely on us to make the best choices we can make. And these critics, very few of them have any solutions. They just want to sit back and criticize. They're not interested in being engaged and involved in making the real difference. There's a real danger, isn't there, that we can lose focus on the good work sometimes. Recently, there have been some human rights and harassment issues associated with Red Plus Project. Serious issues, but they've been dealt with and learned from. I mean, there is a danger that that's the focus rather than the good work that's ongoing in Kenya and in Cambodia, you know, around the world at these projects. I work with a lot of clients who are on their growing edge. They're launching a new company. They're building up into a new level of their career. Something big is happening in their life. And I always tell them that if you're afraid of a making a mistake, you are not going to get where you want to go. And if we just think about the, the science world, they go into a lab expecting to make mistakes. They go into a lab excited about the mistakes because they know that's what's going to give them the information they need to come up with the next vaccine, to come up with the next 
potential cure for a form of cancer. Like it's not something we already know that's going to lead us to where we need to go. It's finding the answer to something we don't know that's going to lead us there. It's going to be running towards the mistake with the passion to find the answer. Absolutely, of course, there's going to be things that go wrong. And as a woman, of course, I am heartbroken and horrified by any kind of issue that negatively impacts women. However, these things happen in the world, unfortunately. What's more unfortunate is when there's companies out there that won't do anything about it. When there's companies out there who actually have systems in place that encourage that kind of behavior. What I see in these organizations and in these businesses that have had something like this happen where they've addressed it like that, they've addressed it quickly because they have systems in place that they're doing everything in their power to keep this from happening. Human behavior will lean towards corruption in certain people. If they have access to power, certain people will use that power for corruption. Other people will use that power to do incredible good. And luckily, there's hundreds of projects who are using this power to do incredible good. And there's one area where something bad happened. And guess what? Because the goal is to make the planet better, to make people's lives better, where these projects are happening. When something happened that was the opposite, action was immediately taken. And the learning mind immediately went in and said, let's look at where our systems failed so that we can make it better. And as a result of that, all of these projects are going to be better moving into the future. So it's not, oh, oops, this thing happened. Let's sweep it under the rug. It was this thing happened. Guess what? We are committed to making our world and our planet and our people who work with us, their lives better. In this instance, it didn't happen. So we're going to learn from it and we're going to implement it so that it only gets better from here. And again, if someone focuses on this one thing as a way to try and attack the whole system, it is only because they would rather critique than to look at how to make sure that these projects and this system succeeds. Talking about things that need to get better, we're speaking just before the COP28 climate meetings in Dubai. What's your message for the world leaders assembling over the coming days? My message has always been one of action and words without action are hollow and hypocritical and also dangerous because when these leaders gather together and they talk about over and over again, yes, this is a real issue. They argue on how real of an issue it might be, but there's more and more people agreeing there's an issue here. But when they put it off, all they're doing is placing the burden of consequence on future generations. And that is highly destructive and dangerous. And so my message is for them to find courage. And I love the word courage because the, the root word for courage is cour, from the French, which means heart. And so I'm calling on these world leaders to get in touch with their heart and realize that they have the capacity to transform the lives of generations to come. They have to find the courage to do so. They need to know that there are millions and millions and millions, if not billions of people who will stand up with them and support them. But they hold the lives in their hands. And it's time to take action, not say 
2032, we will do X, Y, or Z. But in 2023, we will start here and now because we care and we recognize it matters. It's about getting on the right side of history, isn't it? Julia, you wrote a poem 20 years ago inspired by the need to deal with climate and biodiversity issues. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this and why it's so relevant now? It's interesting. I always tell people that poems write me, not the other way around. I'm not one of those people who can sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write a poem today. In the tree, I actually had pants that had big pockets on the side. All of my pants had big pockets on the side. And I would carry little scraps of paper and pen in there, and as well as a pager or a phone in the other pocket. So I would have it there if I needed to write down a note that I had for what I needed to say in the media or if a poem. Or in this instance, it was a poem. It's very interesting to me that that poem is so foretelling of what we're dealing with in the world today, that it wasn't that I was sitting there going, okay, I'm going to write a poem about about what we humans are doing to ourselves and to our capacity to live here. It just came to me that way. And it came to me as kind of this out-of-body third voice experience that this kind of planet that we live on in the cosmos we're carrying on this conversation together going wow those silly humans they had this extraordinary planet look at what we gave them we gave them this planet that was beautiful beyond imagination that was abundant with anything they could possibly need all we needed them to do was respect that gift and take care of it. And in exchange, they could have been there forever. But what did they do? (laughs) They did the opposite, and now they're gone. And that's how the poem came through me. And then here, 20 years later, over 20 years later now, it's very relevant. There's a line in the poem, as one by one began their slaughter of that silly human race. They decided to try again, so they sent them in space. And it's what we see happening right now. We see massive war happening on this planet at an unprecedented rate. And a lot of the wars are happening around resources, access to what we need, but is being fought over because of greed. And at the same time, we have these multi-billionaires sending people off into space, you know, get on my rocket, let's go to Mars, let's go to the moon, let's go here. It's like, how about you use that money to figure out how we can do a better job of living on this earth, on this planet that we already have? Well, it's certainly very relevant and I understand it's being republished shortly. We'll put a link in the podcast description. Julie Butterfly-Hill, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and it's great to have you back. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.